from the first book of Thessalonians, uh, reading from chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 12. If you'd like to follow along, it, the passage is on uh, page 6 of the bulletin. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Good morning. It's funny, um, about 30 minutes ago, I, I shared with Juliet that the worst of my allergies is over, and then we begin worship, and then I'm getting rocked. So uh, I think uh, I thought about that, and I realized uh, I'm allergic to uh, the absence of the Kwans. Um, all that to say, let's, let's continue to pray for them. Uh, yeah, pray for your pastors, and I know many of you do. Uh, but make it a regular habit to um, yeah, lift up the prayers uh, for on behalf of the pastors and others who serve this community. Because uh, we're not spiritual superstars. Uh, we're human beings just like everybody else, and we need God's grace too. Well, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get into the word. Father, we thank you so much for your grace for us. Thanks for all the ways that you love us well and for all the tangible ways that we're reminded of that. Even this morning, God, thanks for this church, this congregation, their faith um, that strengthens me in my faith and my worship. And we pray that you would come and lead us now as we look into your word, that you would equip us for the work that you have called us to do, and that you would strengthen us, Holy Spirit, so that we don't simply labor uh, depending on ourselves and our resources, but that we would cast our burdens, our gifts, our talents before you so that you would take those things for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Roughly 30 years ago, the Bengals, not to be confused with the NFL team, sang, it's just another manic Monday. I wish it was Sunday. You can hear the piano part, right? Because that's my fun day, my I don't have to run day. It's just another manic Monday. Now, you're going to think about this song all week, I guarantee you, okay, because I have. And did you know that the late Prince wrote this song? I did it, um, but I appreciate the song all the more now, knowing that. But I think it's safe to say that Mondays aren't very popular. Monday is like Friday's ugly stepsister, right? We say things like, is it Friday yet in anticipation of the weekend? And a few days later, we say, it's already Monday. And there's a sense of loss and grief as we head into a work week. And there seems to be a visceral reaction to Mondays. I know I did. Just the thought of Monday would ruined my whole weekend sometimes. 
And I'm not alone. Our struggle with work is across all sorts of categories. The New York Times article entitled, Why You Hate Work, reports a Gallup research that around the world, listen to this, across 142 countries, the portion of employees who feel engaged at work is 13%. Engaged meaning involvement, commitment, passion, enthusiasm, focused effort, and energy. Now, before we dismiss this as a throwaway statistic that apply only to non-Christians, I think it would do us well to humbly admit the fact that we are not much better as Christians. Mondays are hard. It almost feels like a human problem. And one of the reasons why we have such a hard time with Mondays and in general with work is our lack of robust theology of work. Many Christians hold a decidedly unbiblical worldview uh, on work. And I realize I paint in broad strokes here, but it comes down to three things. First, many people see work as a curse, or at least a part of the curse in a fallen world. Or, secondly, we make a false distinction between what we do on Sunday, which is spiritual and therefore good, and what we do Monday through Friday, which is not spiritual and therefore not good. And thirdly, many of us, we make an idol out of work. We derive our sense of identity and value from what we do and the paycheck that we earn, the office space that we work out of. And the results of such distorted views are discontentment and disillusionment. And this really is nothing new. The Bible spoke of this way back in Genesis chapter 3, as God was speaking about now the curse of sin and how it would affect work in particular. Starting with verse 17, God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Did you ever pause to think about why God would curse the ground because of Adam's sin? It has something to do with the large and broad scope of sin. You remember the two parts of the cultural mandate God gave to Adam and Eve. The first part was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And second part is exercise dominion over creation. And interestingly, these two things now, thing that used, things that used to be joy are now filled with pain. It says, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and in pain you shall bring forth children. And now because of sin, what was once our joy, our delight, the things that brought meaning and purpose to our very selves, now mixed with struggle, weariness, and frustration. And this is the way it's going to be until Christ returns. And if that's the end of the story, it's pretty discouraging, isn't it? But thankfully, that's 
not the end of the story. The good news of the gospel is that everything pivots on the cross and the empty tomb, and our work is no exception. As redeemed people on this side of heaven, we are called to extend the borders of Eden through our work as we seek human flourishing. Now, let me pause here and say that some of you, I know you love your work. You're like, that Manic Monday thing does not apply to me. I'm at my office hours before, right? I need to be, and I am ready to go. Now, if that's you, this sermon is for you too. Because we need to dig deep into our hearts and see what really is driving that joy. And perhaps it might surprise you to find that it's not something that God has particularly called you to. But as we said, it might be an idol that is feeding you what you want. Maybe. But also, another caveat uh, that I need to talk about here before we go any further is the fact that some work just cannot be redeemed. And I'm not talking about that. Like dealing drugs, you can't redeem that. You can't say, for the glory of God, I'm doing this. So, obviously, we're talking about particular list of work here that most of us are part of, okay? So, as redeemed people, this is what we're called to do. We're called to extend the borders of Eden uh, as we seek human flourishing. And here in uh, 1, Timothy, uh, 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, chapter 4, as Apostle Paul exhorts his audience, on how to live well in light of the second coming of Christ, he challenges them to excel in their daily work. Think about that. A lot of times as we think about the second coming of Christ, we tend to think about how we need to better prepare our hearts, right? Our faith, our love for people. We, we think of these spiritual things, but Paul, among other things, says we need to rethink how we work. And here Paul helps us to develop a theology of work in two ways. And let's first talk about uh, uh, one of these things, which is the dignity of work. Okay, dignity of work. Like most cities, Washington prizes work that mirrors its idols. Idols of power and influence, but not God. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God says to Samuel, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. People look at education, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at experience, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look for expertise, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what is he looking for when he looks at our hearts? He is looking for an obedient heart that works with integrity and excellence regardless of the calling or the station in our current stage of life. So whether you are a lawyer, a teacher, social worker, or a parent, when you work, whatever you're doing, with all your heart as working for the Lord, God is pleased. And this is what Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And later on, he goes on to talk about our work and how our work pleases the Lord. You see, it's God's approval and, and delight in our work that gives dignity 
to what we do. It is not how the world would value our work, but it's how God values our work, mainly the heart with which we approach our work and carry out that work that gives us dignity. And I see glimpses of this with my five-year-old son, James. He shows me his schoolwork. Regularly, he will bring this thing that he drew, and uh, it's supposed to be me and him playing like basketball or soccer, and we look like, like aliens. I, I just don't know how that's us. But he would bring this, and he would ask, Daddy, are you proud of me? Are you proud of me? And that's when I give him the biggest hug I can and tell him, James, I am so proud of you, not only for the things you do, but for who you are, that you are my son. And when I speak these words over him, his face lights up. And all of a sudden, that piece of artwork becomes a lot more meaningful than just a piece of artwork. There's now this deeper meaning and greater dignity that's applied to it because of my joy and delight in what he has done. And I believe this is how God deals with us. And we have to understand this, that we are not trying to earn God's pleasure, but we work out of his pleasure for us. And so we never have to live with his anxiety, looking back at our week, thinking, is God pleased with me? Father, are you proud of me? Rather, we hear those words echoing through our heads and our hearts as we read the word, as we come to worship, and we live Monday through Friday knowing that he is indeed pleased with us. You see, if you are in Christ, the words that were spoken over Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, are the words that are spoken over you all the time. You are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And it has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with how clean your house is or how obedient your children are or how liked you may be at work. It has nothing to do with these things. Christ has already secured that for you. And I wonder how that would change the way we work, the way we engage people at work, and even the folks who live right here in this community. To know that God is pleased with us. I think our ministry might look different. I love what the Apostle Paul says here. Starting with verse 11, he says, But we urge you, brothers... To do this more and more, and we're going to come back to this, okay? But we'll read on, verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Did you catch that? Work with your hands, Paul says. This idea of working with one's hands, believe it or not, was radical and even controversial. In the ancient Greek world where it was widely believed that the spiritual was good and the material bad, it was degrading to work with one's hands. Only slaves worked with their hands. But if you were anyone of any significance, you did not work with your hands. 
And you see what the Bible is doing here? It pushes back against this absurd category that the dominant culture has formed and basically says, no, every work is important to God. And Paul here elevates what would be considered menial tasks and puts them on equal footing with the elites. This, again, shouldn't surprise us because after all, Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in Jesus, our Lord, our God, held blue-collar jobs. Paul was a tent maker, and Jesus was a carpenter. And it baffles me, baffles me to think that our Lord, God, man, Christ himself, spent a good chunk of his earthly life honing his trade. To learn the tools, the different types of trees, how to care for them. And I'm certain they took great pride in their work. Some author once said, no faulty furniture ever came out of Galilee, not from that shop. And I think we need to hear this. We need to remind ourselves that the quality of our work, both heart and hand, matters to God and also to our community. The temptation is to somehow infuse spirituality into our work to somehow justify it, right? So we do things like pray before work, read the word during lunch break, and try to build relationships so that we can witness to our coworkers. Now, these things are all good, and I commend you to do these things, but they don't necessarily add or even give value to your work. Your work itself is valuable to God for all the reasons that we just talked about. Dorothy Sayre is helpful here. She remarked, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Did you hear that? And we need to hear these words afresh. Because often we struggle to make sense of what we do between Sundays. And we sort of just survive and say, whoa, that, I made it. Here I am on Sunday. Now my life means something. No, actually what you do Monday morning matters. The quality of work you produce Tuesday after lunch, yes, even after lunch, when you get that 2.30 feeling, it matters. As Christians, we, like Paul and Jesus, ought to take great pride in our work as if working for the Lord. Behind every manager stands Christ, who evaluates our hearts. He's looking. Not at the things we turn in, but he's looking at our hearts. And we, when we work to love him, to honor him, he is pleased. Let's move now to our final point. The purpose of work. The purpose of work. In the creation account, God outlines the twofold purposes of work, which are, first, to image God who worked six days, right? He created all things and rested on the seventh day. 
And second, to fulfill the cultural mandate by bringing order and beauty from chaos. And this, for all of us as Christians called to work, regardless of what that work is, is our calling to repurpose our work to serve not ourselves, but to serve others, to seek the common good. And the first step to redeeming our work is identifying the idols in our hearts. It starts with our hearts. Pastor Tim Keller is helpful here. He distinguishes surface idols from deep idols. And the idea here is that deep idols, idols of power, approval, comfort, and security, express themselves as multiple surface idols. For example, the deep idol of comfort can disguise itself on the surface as idolatry of money, approval, and relationships. Does that make sense? Because these are different ways that we receive comfort. And this is what we need to know. No matter how hard we address the surface idols of money approval or relationship, if we don't address the deep idol of comfort, we will not experience gospel transformation. All we will end up doing is simply substituting one idol for another. And this is helpful because true repentance must expose and address these idols and bring these things before God. And I, I love King David's prayer in Psalm 139 where he prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think it ought to be a regular practice for us disciples of Christ to lay our hearts bare before him and say, Lord, I'm not even sure what's on in me, but you do. You have searched me and you know me. Lord, bring these things to mind and help me to work through them by your spirit. And as we identify the deep-seated idols and repent of them, right, the second step then is to experience gospel freedom, right? Freedom. See, with repentance comes freedom where the promises of these idols no longer hold power over us. And that's when we begin to realize that we are not what we do. And we are not what we don't do. That we are not valued by our work. That we are not accepted based on our work. And we are certainly not saved by our work. And if we get this, if we really get this, we begin to experience freedom in the way that Christ desires for us. Think about it. Everything that we strive for through work, through relationship, all of these things has already been given to us in Christ. We want to be known. We want to make a name for ourselves in this city to be published, to be recognized. But the Bible says God knows us better than even ourselves, that we are fully known. We want to be accepted. We want to be a part of a community, a meaningful relationship to experience intimacy. And the Bible says we have been adopted as his children. We are 
his beloved. We want to be loved. The Bible says God loves us unconditionally, and the cross proves that once and for all. You see, everything we are striving for at the heart level has already been given to us in Christ. And this is a promise that we have. Everything we need for life and for godliness has been already given to us. And if we really believe that, then we will experience freedom from the idols of this world. One of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. Anyone watch this? I remember watching this movie as a high school student, really just not liking my youth pastor because he made us sit through hours of this boring movie where no one dies. You know, it's like, what's the point? Nothing blows up. No one dies. But over the years, I've come to really appreciate this movie. It's a story about two athletes competing in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, One of the characters is uh, Eric Little, a Scottish Christian who then goes on to become a great missionary in China. And I love that line at the end of the movie, if you persevered like 10 hours and got through it. It says, when he died, all of China wept. I just, man, I just love that. I think it's so beautiful. And second character is Harold Abrahams, an English Jewish, uh, Jew. Um, and, and both just stellar athletes. And they go on to win uh, a gold medal in different events. And what's interesting is their motive for running. And that really is the bulk of the story here. Eric uh, famously said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And like he runs in like this funny way where he's got his head back and he's smiling because he feels God's pleasure as he runs. But interestingly and insightfully, Harold Abrams said, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And really, the contrast at the end of the movie, as Eric wins a gold medal and goes on to become a missionary, uh, that's that's one story. And Harold, he wins the gold medal. And then immediately after that, he's at a bar with his trainer, utterly disappointed. Because he's realized that everything that he'd worked for was just this. He's crushed. He's looking for the next thing. I mean, those two pictures, the snapshots of these two characters, I I think it's telling, right, of how the gospel transforms those of us who work to get the things that Christ has already given to us, right? Gospel frees us from living this kind of life to justify our experience at our work through our relationships and so on and so forth. Again, Dorothy Sayer on this role of work, she says, I asked that work should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. If we put work in its proper place, Like Dorothy Sayers says, it's a proper exercise. It's good for us. It's what we are made for. And therefore, it's our delight. I love that. And one of the ways we can check our heart 
okay? And we all need to run diagnostic tests here, is to gauge our ability to rest and rest well. Because rest is an act of faith. It says, God is God and I am not, and I'm entrusting the results to the Lord. It really is an act of faith. And even as we think about Duke and his family being on this brief rest, I hope that we would pray, God, help them to do this and do this well, that they would grow in their faith during their time away. They would not be anxious about what's going on and how's the church doing because pastors can do that. But that we would pray, God, help them to rest well. And, it, and I really like what Matthew 11 says here. Here Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. He does not say, come to me and you will never work again. Okay? I know some of us, we, we search for that phrase, right? Where is that part? Isn't that the gospel that we never have to work again? No, I got bad news for you. Even in heaven, we will work. And it will be to our joy, our deep satisfaction. We will work. And what Jesus does here is he promises rest in the midst of work. That rest would not be only a source of stress and anxiety and frustration and all these things. But that we will begin to glimpse what will be a reality on the other side of heaven. That work will be our delight. Deep, deep delight. That it would give us energy and life. So that as we think about Monday mornings, that we're not like, oh, great. But there's a part of us that says, yeah, I'm really excited to go and, and not only be a salt and light, but go and work with excellence to seek the common good. To be a blessing to people God has put in my life. And when our heart is transformed in this way, that we're free from the powers that the idols have over us, then work becomes service to others, okay? Work becomes service to others. To put it differently, work then becomes one of the ways we love others. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 11, the text that we read, Apostle Paul connects two seemingly uh, weird, um, opposing thoughts together. Because in verses um, in the first part of that section, he talks about loving others well. And then in the latter part, he talks about working and working hard. And I think his thought here is this. He's saying to the Thessalonians, I want you to love more and more by working hard. Why? Because work serves the common good of others. It's our way of loving people. And I, I was sort of stuck here Thursday morning as I was preparing my sermon uh, by a nearby, uh, nearby Starbucks. And uh, that's when a trash truck pulled up and took out the trash. And it hit me, huh, their service is one of the ways of loving me. Because I don't have to then sit here on a mountain of garbage trying to do work. And it caught my attention as I looked around. I realized, wow, I'm drinking coffee that I didn't invent. I am sitting on a chair that I cannot design. I am typing on a computer I cannot engineer. And there before me are 
tons of buses transporting people to where they need to go to them work. I realize in all of these ways, our work is an expression of loving people. And I don't know how all this works, how my particular work, not only my work in the pulpit, but even outside of that, goes to serving and loving people well. But God has promised to use my work to somehow love Diane, my next door neighbor. And we think about creating a new community and loving the people right here in the several blocks that God has planted us in. I wonder how many of us think about our work, our jobs. That that is one of the ways that I can love the people right here. Now, it does not excuse you from volunteering, right? To form that committee after church so you can go and eat and have fellowship. It doesn't excuse you from those things. But I think it elevates our work to, in a way that we begin to understand that it really is honoring to the Lord and is a way of loving others well. Martin Luther on loving others through work said this. He said, we respond to the call to love our neighbor by fulfilling the duties associated with our everyday And when we work to honor God, we love others. And when we think about all this that we just talked about, I hope you begin to realize that this is what Christ has done for us. Jesus, on the cross, honored God and loved others to the end. If you are not a Christian looking into Christian faith here this morning, let me say this. There are no other gods in this world who will work hard for you. And the gospel says, our God worked hard. He got his hands dirty when he created Adam and Eve. And he got his hands dirty when he carried that cross. And he loved us to the end so that through his work that he could demonstrate his love for us. And on that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. You know what that means? It means that his finished work gives eternal significant significance to our work and repurposes our efforts for his kingdom. I hope as you think about tomorrow morning going into work, I know your initial re knee-jerk reaction would be, oh, no, it's Monday. But I hope that what we talked about here will inform you and shape the way you understand work and that it will give you renewed energy and purpose in the work that you do to honor God and to love others well. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for, um, we thanks, uh, we give you thanks for Jesus who loved us. Christ who loved us to the end by working hard on our behalf. Lord, teach us to rest in that finished work but also to work hard as a result of that work, knowing that our work now has significant meaning, that it goes beyond the boundary of self-service, but that you somehow use it to expand your kingdom to your honor. So, Lord, give us strength, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's continue to worship him and thank him.